Hi, and thank you for listening in to the New Song Podcast from this week's service. You are welcome and encouraged to join us at 10 a.m. on Sundays in person. And for more information on how to get involved with New Song, go to newsonglouisville.org and follow us on social media. And now for today's message. Good morning. Welcome to New Song. I am so excited to be here. It's been a bit since I've been in the pulpit, so bear with me. I'm a little rusty. Seems to be a common theme in my life these days. I'm not sure where to go after Pastor Burt, Jeff, Wilson, (laughs) and Rick. I don't know that we need more. That was good stuff. But, all right. Well, it's interesting. You're going to find, as the Lord so faithfully does, some commonalities in what we've already heard this morning and what the Lord laid on my heart. He's really faithful to do stuff like that. It's one of the things that I love about him, quite frankly. Get my timer out. I've been told I'm on a time limit. I'm really not okay with that, but, you know, I am. I submit to authority. I don't have a problem with that. Let's see. There's 40 pages here. I figure I should have you out by dinner. You all brought snacks, right? Okay. I was making sure. So before we dive into the word, I want to... Um, just invite the Holy Spirit into this moment. So let's do that. Father, we thank you for your word, your living word, Jesus. We also thank you for the Holy Spirit. Lord, let your spirit reign down on this place today, Lord God. The words that are delivered, may they be from your heart, in your wisdom, and in your purposes, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please keep my husband in your prayers. He is at home sick. Yeah. Neither one of us slept last night. He, bless his heart, was not feeling well at all. So I would just ask that you guys would pray for him. As I was preparing for the word today, you know, the Lord, uh, my gosh, back several months ago, spoke to my spirit one morning and he said, I want you to rest in my sovereignty. And I want you to preach about that. I'm like, okay, Lord, when the time is right, you tell me, and I'll, I'll go share whatever it is that you want me to share. I don't have a problem with that. But the way he took me to it is really interesting. And so before we dive in, I want to give you a little bit of a backstory on how I got here this morning, specifically about a journey that he set me on. So I don't know how many of you all know this, but when I, as my whole time growing up, I wanted to be a doctor. It's all I ever wanted to do. It's all I ever dreamed about. I was a little girl, and I wanted to be a doctor. And so I did everything in my power to get there. I did well in school. Um, Didn't have the financial means, but, you know, it is what it is. And so I went to sign up for the Army. And at 17, I went, met with the recruiter, took the ASVAB, did well on the test. No big deal. The day that I graduated from high school, I wasn't quite 18 yet, my mother was diagnosed with an undetermined heart condition. Now, for those of you who don't know, my parents are divorced, and so that left my mom at home, now sick, with my two little sisters. And I toiled over that. And I decided I couldn't go, so I didn't. Some years later, um, I had another chance because that, that desire never left my heart. That dream never left my heart. So uh, I had been married, sadly divorced, had two little children at home. And another opportunity presented itself to go. And I was all on board, guys. I thought, we can do this. The Lord's with me. I can do this. I went to sign the papers again, this time with the Navy. And there, inside that packet was a document that said I had to give custody of my children to my ex-husband for six months while I was at sea. And I was not okay with that. So I spent a lot of my adult years fully believing that I'd missed my calling. And it ate at me. I'm going to be honest. There was a sadness that sat in my spirit. Around 2010, um, I, one of my children was in high school. Actually, Zach had just graduated. Michael was a senior. Raymond was a junior. And Brianna was a freshman. And um, 
We had a guest speaker here at New Song. His name was Mark Akers. Does anybody remember Mark? Beth and Doug, you all were here that day. I know, Betty, you were here. Bert was here. And he was doing a prophetic soaking over each and every one of us after service. Guys, bear with me. My mouth is so dry. And I did not want to miss that, okay? My oldest, or I'm sorry, Michael had to be at J.C. Penney's, his job, at 1 o'clock. Service at that time ran until about noon. And so I'm like, Eric, I can't miss this. I need to be here. So we shove everybody in the car. We drive to J.C. Penney's, drop him off. It was a rough ride. Of course, we ended up in an argument. Surprise. And I'm like, I'm going to this service. You can go with me or you can stay home, but I'm going. So he, you know, he gave in and we came back. There had been a semicircle of people around the platform. And Mark had already gone all the way around the room and was right over here. So I shuffled over, got in line, and literally I was like, next. And he looked at me and he smiled. He said, what's your name? And I said, my name is Dawn. And he was like, that makes perfect sense. And I was like, he said, did you know that you're a healer? And my heart sank. And in my spirit and in my mind, I'm thinking, I know. And I missed it. And he goes, but not in a physical sense. He said, the Lord has a purpose for you, and that's to bring spiritual and emotional healing to hundreds, if not thousands of people. And I just broke. What do you do with that? I had no power in that moment to act on it. And quite frankly, if I'm being honest, I didn't really even fully understand what that meant. But I held that word near and dear to my heart. Lord, your will be done, not mine. But what it did for me is it gave me hope. And I needed hope. I think we heard a little something about hope here this morning. Nothing spectacular happened after that. But I did attend another conference on freedom. It was actually Pure Desire Ministries in Frederick, Maryland some years later. Pure Desire Ministries teaches about pornography addictions and freedom from it. And while I was there, we were challenged to ask the Lord who he said we was. And I've never really thought about that before. I thought that's kind of a cool concept. And we had a, an exercise and we all had to write it out and we'd submit it. And the Lord told me three things about myself, that I was a healer, that I was a conveyor of truth, and that I was an agent of change. And I thought, that's fantastic. I really get it. I have no idea what it means, but hey, I'm on board. Let's do it. And so I held that near to my heart, and I prayed about these things often. Come forward to 20. 17, women's conference, March of that year, Marion Engineering came and spoke to us. Some of you all know who Marion is. Doug and Beth, Beth was here for the women's conference. She also spoke to our staff independently, and then she spoke on Sunday morning service. And she talked about this thing that was coming. It was called WIML, Women in Ministry Leadership. And my husband, who really, if you know my husband, he's kind of a... I don't know if laid back is the right word for him. Would you call Eric laid back, Bert? I don't know. You just have to know my husband. But he said, I think you should go to that. Now, it wasn't an event. It was a nine-month training cohort. Right after service, Doug Sloan came to me. He said, Dawn, you're supposed to go be part of this. And I said, okay, okay. And I prayed about it. And sure enough, the Lord said, yes. So I started the the cohort, nine months long. It was amazing, to be quite honest. About November, the Lord dropped a word in my heart, and he said, I have some things for you to do, but I need your yes. And I said, okay, Lord, what is it? And he said, I want you to go back to school full time, and I want you to get training on counseling others from a spiritual perspective. And I'm like, Lord, I don't know if you remember, but I'm 50. 
I don't have a bachelor's degree. <laughs> you might want to rethink this because I'm pretty old. And he said, no, sweetheart, I, I want you to go back. And so I prayed about it. And I held that dear to my heart. And I thought about it. And then one morning, I'm like, Lord, you have my yes, my unconditional from the top of my head to the soles of my feet, every cell in my body. Yes, let's do it. But I ask one thing from you first. Telling my husband that I want to leave work and leave my salary behind is not a comfortable thing for me. I need him to be on board. So not only do I need his yes, but I need him dreaming about it because that's when I know that my husband is fully, he's in it, that you have his yes. And he said, okay, well, when the right time comes, I'll tell you. So one evening in November, we were sitting on the couch downstairs and I heard the Holy Spirit say to me, ask your husband about leaving work. So I turned to Eric and I said, hey, I was just thinking, um, the Lord's been speaking to me about this. I think I'm supposed to go back to school to be a counselor, and I'm supposed to quit work to do it. Now, I'm not asking you to respond. I'm just asking you to pray about it, and you let me know what you think. He goes, okay. Never said another word about it that night. I just let it, let it simmer. About a week later at work, I got a phone call from my husband, and he said, you know, I've been thinking about this. He said, um, you're not getting any younger, so if you really think you should do this, you better go get it. Yes, sweetheart, thank you for pointing that out. Check. There's my first one. When even a week later, midday at work, he calls me, he goes, hey, I happen to be out on Shelbyville Road, and there's some office places for rent out here. If you want to get one of these, I'll go in and remodel it, and then I'll make it anything you want it to be check. There was my second one. Because the Lord knows my heart, but he also knows my husband's. And I wanted us to both be fully committed to this journey because we're not talking about going straight to grad school. I had to get a bachelor's degree first. Right? Six years is what it was going to take me to do it. I had some college education from U of L. But my, I, had, I was an EMT, which you do in trade school. So you didn't, you don't have a degree. A week later, I put in my resignation. In December 15th of 2017, I walked out the doors at the Board of Education and left my salary and my career behind. I was like, okay. I enrolled at Liberty University and began my bachelor's degree pursuit. All the time, I'm still doing the cohort, which kind of come to a close in February of 2018 at a conference in Arizona. So I go to the conference, and if I'm going to be honest, I, it's, I'm, I'm pretty bold. I'd say that's fair, Betty. Would you say that's fair? Okay. <laughs> but I walked into this room full of women, and for the very first time in my life, I was intimidated beyond anything I had ever experienced. This room was full of women who had been anointed by the Lord. And I was like, Phew, I do not belong here. And I went to my mentor who had been in with me in that cohort, and I said, Trey, I am so, I'm just so intimidated. And he goes, I know, <laughs> isn't it great? And I'm like, no, it's not great. <laughs> he goes, Dawn, You've been used to being around strong women in small doses, but this building this weekend is full of them. Get to know them, hear their stories, and let them know who you are. And so I did. And part of that, part of that weekend was a prophetic piece. And so I had four people who did not know me pray over me again. And the word that they gave me was healer, Agent of change, imagine that, and warrior. So now I have three confirmations from the Lord. That was in February of 2018, March, I started School at Liberty. And it has been six years of pursuing what the Lord very clearly laid out as what my purpose was. So in that time too, 
it, I got my licensure, my minister, because part of the thing he gave me the weekend was, I want you to get your credentials for counseling, for therapy. I want you to be a licensed pastor. Those are, those are the things I'm calling you to. I'm like, okay, Lord. So I worked diligently for this time. Come to 2023. Now, this is the year I graduate. December 8th, I walk across the stage in Campbellsville, Kentucky, across the finish line. All right. Thank you. It's been six years, and it has not been easy, folks. But there was something significant that happened in 2023. It started off with a bang. Those of you who know me know my dad was in the hospital a couple of times. My mom was in the hospital. Stuff kept happening, and I'm not exaggerating. Come July, it was like a landslide of events. There was one that was substantial, okay? My dad was in the hospital. My mom was in the hospital. My stepmother was in the hospital. We wrecked the RV. The pool exploded, and the dog got sick in seven days, and I'm not kidding you. It got so bad, all we could do was laugh. But what was significant about that is July, the first or second week of July, I got a letter from the Foursquare Church that said, you've been recommended for ordination in October. All this stuff had happened. I'm 20-ish weeks from graduation. And one of these events was so significant, it put me in a position where I had to make a decision Am I going to fulfill that obligation or I'm going to see this through? 20 weeks out. And I didn't think I was going to get to the finish line. And I prayed and I worked and I prayed and I worked. This was a monumentous, this was an insurmountable obstacle. I saw no other way. And Tuesday morning, one Tuesday morning in July, I sat on the porch And I cried to the Lord. And I said, Lord, I've done literally everything in my strength. And I cried. I'm like, I'm going to have to quit. I'm 20 weeks-ish from the finish line, and I'm going to have to quit. And he said, sweetheart, rest in my sovereignty. So I did. It was like a 10-ton weight had been lifted off of me. The tears were crying. I was worshiping, praising God. I was free from this baggage. I had let it go and decided to rest in the sovereignty. That was around 10 a.m. that morning when I finished. 12 o'clock that afternoon, I got a phone call from a number I didn't recognize. And this woman said to me, um, ma'am, I hear you need my help about this specific event. And I said, yeah. And she said, tell me what's going on. And so I gave her the details and all of the obstacles that stood in the way. And she goes, oh, I don't think that's a problem. Tell me this piece. And I gave her that piece of information. She said, she goes, would you like to see the place today at 2.30? And I'm like, are you serious? And she said, yeah. So I was like, yeah, let's go look. So I get in my car with, with my mother, and I drive across the bridge, and we walk in. And by 3.15 that afternoon, I was standing in the middle of the solution, and the Lord had freed it. That's what I'm here to tell you about today. What does it mean to rest in God's sovereignty? Because we toil and we toil and we toil. And I just realized I don't have a clicker, guys. Oh, you're awesome. So as I began to do research and study and prepare for this, I thought, what, is it, what exactly does it mean? What is God's sovereignty? And so as I began to research, I found this. It said God's sovereignty is a natural consequence of his omniscience omnipotence and his omnipresence. I think everybody would agree with that. I don't think anybody would argue that point. But I thought, let's see what scripture says. Well, that got a little off center, didn't it? It said, our Lord is great with limitless strength 
we'll never even comprehend what he knows and does. See, all that time I had toiled, my God had been taking care of things in the background, and I knew nothing about it. Two he is. I love this message version. I think it helps me better conceptualize the limitless power in his majesty. So let's look at the next one. I also found this quote by R.C. Sproul. It says, the sovereignty of God means that he is the ruler of all. His will will always be accomplished whether we perceive it or not. And he's right. We all know that our lack of understanding is not required. Our understanding is not required for God to be able to do what only he can do. But again, I always look to the word because where is all of our truth lay in God's word? And this is what I found. Proverbs 103, 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Well, I think that's pretty clear. There's no exceptions to this. Would you all agree? Yeah. All right, go ahead. And because, you know, once, twice isn't enough for me, I want one more. So God's sovereignty means that he is the supreme ruler who imminently and personally rules over all the affairs of the universe. And this includes our personal lives, both as individuals and as local bodies of believers. God's sovereignty is a place of rest for the child of God, as well as a cause of worship. Mm, I love that. I found this definition on Bible.com. Aren't you all proud of me? <laughs> Wherever I need to go find stuff, I'm, a, I'm not beyond that. I really liked it. But it also said something in there that is a sticking place for a whole lot of people. How does God's sovereignty interact with man's will? That's been a debate. I mean, as far as, as long as I've been in the church, and I know it's been since Jesus walked the face of this earth, where does God's sovereignty interact with man's will? How do those two things fit together? We'll come back to that in just a second. But what does scripture say about this? It says, I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. That's the wisdom of Job after he'd been through the mess and he was talking to the Lord. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who, has, who have been called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. Romans 8 is one of my favorite chapters in scripture. This is the place that we rest. This is it. Sorry. So, Let's talk about this. How does God's sovereignty in man's free will interact? I was doing some research on kind of the best way to describe and explain these two. When I found a description on a, a Bible research site, and it offered this, and I thought it was really good. So in me, instead of me trying to explain it, I'm going to read it from here. It says, God is described in the Bible as all-powerful, and all-knowing. That's Psalm 147.5. He exists outside of time, Exodus 3.14 and Psalm 92. He's responsible for the creation of everything, Genesis 1.1 and John 1.1. These divine traits set the minimum boundary for God's sovereignty. Catch that? The minimal boundary for God's sovereign control in the universe, which is to say that nothing in this universe occurs without God's permission. God has the power and the knowledge to prevent anything he chooses to prevent, so anything that does happen must, at the very least, be allowed for God. And there's some people are going to go, wait a minute, so bear with me, okay? At the same time, the Bible describes God as offering humanity choices, Deuteronomy 30, 15 through 9, holding them personally responsible for their sins, Exodus 25, and being unhappy with some of their actions, Numbers 25, 3. The fact that sin exists at all proves that not all things occur are the direct result or actions of God because God is holy. He does no bad thing. Can we agree to that? The fact... 
oh, I'm sorry, the reality of human volition and human accountability sets the maximum boundary for God's sovereign control over the universe, which is to say that there is a point at which God chooses to allow things that happen that he does not directly cause. I think it kind of sums it up, but I really think it's still pretty simplistic because we're talking about God. So our capacity to even begin to understand or comprehend when he chooses to enact his sovereignty over our will I don't have an answer to that. And quite frankly, I don't know that one exists that we're even capable of understanding. Would you all agree to that? It's the wisdom of God. He knows what we cannot know because our minds are simply too small. So the fact that God is sovereign essentially means that he has the power, wisdom, and authority to do anything he chooses with his creation. Whether or not he actually exerts that level of control in any given circumstance is actually a completely different matter. I think it's important to recognize that even this offering, like I said, is far too simplistic. And so this is a place where we just kind of have to trust him. Let's change. So as, I, like I said, I was preparing Tuesday morning about 3 a.m., so I guess technically it was Wednesday morning. The Lord woke me up, and I'm like, yes, Lord, and he said, Let's talk about Sunday. So I get my phone out because it's dark and it's the only thing I had. And thankfully it's lit up and I start taking notes. And he said, I want to show you some places, some people in the Bible who chose to rest in my sovereignty piece by piece. I'm like, let's do it. So we're going to start with Abraham and Isaac. If you have your Bible, you can turn. It's Genesis 22, 19. And this is a little bit long, so just kind of bear with me, all right? So, 2222, it says, I'm sorry, 221. Sometime later, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, here I am, Abraham replied. Then God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. So early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took him, two of his servants, and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for a place that God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. And he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood the burnt offering, and placed it on his son Isaac. Excuse me. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. And when you think about this for just a minute, how long had Abraham waited for the son? Much longer than any of us would have even considered. I, if I'm being honest, maybe some of us could hold on hope for that many years, but not many of us. As a matter of fact, if you look at it, Sarah and Abraham didn't actually wait because she offered up her maidservant. They conceived a child, and we know how that turned out. Yeah. When we take things into our own hands, guys, when the Lord has given us a word and then we choose to do something different because we can't wait, we're just asking for difficulties, Right? But now coming back to this story, that had not been wisdom, and we all know that. God had had a plan. And at this point in this story, God had fulfilled the promise of an heir to Abraham, but now he was asking Abraham to sacrifice the very gift he had given him. So when they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. 
he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to say to his son, to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out after him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, said Abraham. I love how Abraham answers. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld me from your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And to this day, it said, on the mountain of the Lord, on the mountain the Lord will provide. Wouldn't flip. Picking up at 15, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, will, ah, there it is. I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba, and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. So what is it that Abraham possessed that allowed him to rest in God's sovereignty? With the precious son he'd waited so long for that God had called to be sacrificed. What would allow him to even entertain the idea of sacrificing his only child? For me, that is so far out of my realm of comprehension. The verse said that he feared God, but he also trusted God, and he knew God's character. In what seemed like an incomprehensible request of the Father, Abraham chose to reflect on his own personal experience with God, and he chose to trust him. He believed that the very God who provided the gift would also provide the request. Whether Abraham perceived God's sovereign plan or not, he trusted it. If you notice, even Isaac at one point is going, hey, Dad, we've got the fire, we've got the wood, and we've got the knife. Where's the ram? And Abraham told him, don't worry. The fire and the wood are here, but the lamb is for the burnt offering. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Because Abraham knew he could trust God. Abraham was a man of faith and of faith. In fact, Romans 4, 3 says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So let's look real quickly at another one. The next one the Lord took me to was Esther. And I happen to love Esther, guys. Queen Esther was a woman who showed remarkable bravery. So turn to Esther 4, 19 through 13 if you have, if you have it with you. And in the essence of time, let me just kind of set the stage real quick. So Esther's uncle Mordecai overheard that the evil Hamish was going to kill out all the Jews. Okay? He also knew that Esther was in a position where she could possibly have influence, right? So he sent a message to Esther herself, a Jewish woman, and pleaded for her assistance. Go ahead. Oh, where, where's slide? Ahead. I'm sorry. So um, Haddock went and told Esther what Mordecai had said, and then Esther spoke to Haddock, instructing him to go back to Mordecai with the message. Every servant of the king and every person in the king's province knows that for any man or woman who goes to the king in the inner court without being summoned, there is only one law, that he be put to death. Unless the king holds out his golden scepter to him, only then will he live. For these last 30 days, I've not been summoned by the king. They reported Esther's message to Mordecai, and Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, don't suppose that because you are in the palace, you will escape any more than any of the other Jewish people. Indeed, if you are silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. Who knows that you weren't brought 
here for a time such as this. One of my favorite things. So what Esther is saying is, look, I hear what you're asking, but do you realize that if I go into the king's court without being invited, it very well could cost me my life. And Mordecai essentially is like, don't forget, Esther, you too are Jewish. God will save his people. Do you think it's by happenstance that you happen to be positioned to act on behalf of God? Mordecai's recognizing, even at that moment, God's providence in this whole situation. Let me flip it. Then Esther replied to Mordecai, go and gather all the Jewish people who are in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night and day. Both I and my young women will also fast in the same way. And then I'll go into the king, even though against the law. And if I perish, then I perish. So Esther knew that she needed God to act on her behalf. But she was willing to sacrifice it all, even her life, if she could be part of God's plan to save the Jewish people. She was not, however, about to do it without praying and fasting first. So he asked the Jewish people to move to join her and her servants in fasting before she moved. And I want to say that this is a spiritual discipline a lot of us kind of have foregone just a little bit. Now, we do a corporate fast here in January. But when was the last time that you entered into a fast at home to, to push into the Lord and, and ask him, Lord, I need you in this moment. I'm laying this down to connect you in a deep way, and I need you to respond to me. Fasting should be a part of that process. Go on to the next one. So then he took me to Daniel, and he showed me the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I really hate the fact that I don't have a really cool joke for that like Pastor Jeff always does. So just forgive me. Now, this is a lengthy story, and we are running short on time because I promised to have you home before dinner, so I'm not going to get into all of it. Let me just summarize it for you. So King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that perplexed him, so he became very frustrated that it could not be interpreted. And so he issued an edict that he, was gonna, he wanted all the wise men in the kingdom killed. I guess if you've got a lot of money or a lot of power, you can do that kind of stuff. But he was going to have them all killed. And this included Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because even though they were Jewish, they were still considered wise men in the nation. So they kind of laid low for a couple of days. And then Daniel prayed and he said, Lord, not for my glory, but for yours. Will you help me and give me an interpretation for this dream? And he went to bed that night and the Lord responded and did. And that placed Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a position of value to the kingdom, and they, were, they began to govern in little parts of the kingdom. Go ahead and switch. So at this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to the king Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zyre, lyre, Harp and pipe and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into the fire, into the blazing furnace. So what had happened is Daniel didn't interpret the dream, and in Nebuchadnezzar's idolatrous heart, he erects this golden statue, and now he wants whenever the tones are sound, everybody in the kingdom is to worship the statue. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, "We'll pass." And he's like, no, I don't think you understand. This has been an edict issued by the king. If you don't, you're going to be thrown in the fiery furnace. And they're like, okay. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And if he delivers us from your majesty's hand, but even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your God 
or worship the image of the gold that you have set up. As you can imagine, that didn't set well with the king, and he ordered them to be tossed in the fiery furnace. But not just any furnace. He had them heat that baby up seven times what it was normally done, tied them up, and he throws them in. And then he stands on the side, and he looks in, because somebody's like, they're not dead. And as he peers into the fiery furnace, he sees not three men, but four. And he's like, surely their God has responded. So he calls them out. Guys, come back out here. And when they come out of the furnace, they didn't even smell like smoke. So what did they do to rest in God's sovereignty? They were obedient to God's word, and they remained steadfast in that obedience regardless of the danger that they faced. All right, let's flip. All right, Joseph, we're, we're wrapping up. Hang with me. I'm sorry. All right, so Genesis 39. So let's take a real quick look at Joseph. In 39, we find Joseph who's been sold into slavery by his brothers for being young and arrogant and stupid, right? But now he's been placed in charge of all that Potiphar had because Joseph was a man of wisdom and trustworthiness. He had the Lord's heart, right? Scripture also said that he was quite handsome, And at some point in time, he caught the eye of Potiphar's wife, okay? When Potiphar's wife kept trying to, quite frankly, seduce him, and at one point in time, she went so far as she caught him alone, and she grabbed hold of him, and he so feverishly wanted to flee that he left his cloak behind. So when Potiphar came home that evening, his wife said, look, he tried to have his way with me, and here's the proof. So poor Joseph ends up in prison. He spent the next several years in prison. And uh, 39.21 goes on to say, but while Joseph was in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. Verse 22 says, so the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success at whatever he did. So what can we take away from this moment in Joseph's life? Despite the injustice of our circumstances, we must honor God in our words, our actions, and with our minds. Because he honored God and kept his mind focused on godly thinking, he was held at esteem even in prison, guys. He found God's favor inside the prison walls. Let's turn. Let's take a quick look at David. We're going to take snippets from First and Second Samuel, okay? So we all know the story of David and Goliath. It's only one, it's one that we're all taught as little children. The Philistines have Goliath at the front of the battle line against Saul and his men, who are reluctant to battle him. So King Saul and his men are on one side on hill. Goliath and the Philistines are on the other side, and there's a valley that sits between them. But King Saul's men, I mean, they see this guy. He's almost seven feet tall. He's wearing armor that looks like scales and a helmet made of bronze. And he's taunting them. And they're all kind of trembling in their shoes. Nobody wants to fight him. So King Saul says, you know what? The one man who is brave enough to go to battle and kill him, I will make you wealthy. I will give you my daughter's hand in marriage. And your family will no longer ever pay taxes. Now that's a big deal, right? So David, who is still very young at this time, decides he'll do it. Much to the dismay of his brothers who are there. So let's pick up the story in verse 32. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of the Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You're not able to go out against the Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man. And he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and carried off the sheep from the flock, I went after it, I struck it, and I rescued the sheep from its mouth. 
And when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and I killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he defied the armies of the living God. I love that line. Who are you to defy the armies of the living God? So, where was I? Got too excited. Oh, the Lord has rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, and he will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. Saul said to David, go and let the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he wasn't used to that stuff. And he said, I cannot go in these. He said this all because I'm not used to them. So he took them off, picked up his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in his pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with a sling in his sand, he approached the Philistine in the valley. The king offered David his own armor to wear. David, like I said, tried it, realized it's just too big for him, and he's going into the battle against the man who's almost seven feet tall wearing armor-like scales and a bronze helmet with a sling and a few rocks in his pocket. And as you all know, David wins the battle and the hand of the king's daughter. But what was so significant about that story? How did David rest in God's sovereignty at that moment? David knew the king's armor was more than a hindrance than a help. So against all logic, he moved forward with what he knew the Lord had fostered within him. He rested in God's sovereignty and went into the battle with a sling and just a few stones. Sometimes God's, rest, sometimes God's resting in God's sovereignty means we either have to defy or deny conventional wisdom. That's not comfortable for all of us. Go ahead, next one. David was also a man who praised and worshiped God despite his circumstances and state of mind. When you look through the Psalms, they're chock full of songs that David wrote. And he wrote those where he praised the Lord even when his heart was burdened and heavy. When you look at Samuel, 2 Samuel, Saul's jealousy attempts to murder David were numerous throughout that, yet he continued to worship and praise the Lord. I particularly love 2 Samuel 22, 1, when David said, I will extol the Lord at all times, and his praise will always be on my lips. Always be on my lips. It doesn't say when I feel like it or when things are good, when we're on the easy path. It doesn't say anything like that. So let's just take a minute to summarize real quickly. We covered a whole lot of material. So what does resting in God's sovereignty mean? It means we must trust God and have faith. We must know God's character, and we do this by reading his word and spending time in his presence. We must pray and fast, especially when we recognize that we are powerless to change our own circumstances. We must be obedient to what God has called us to and remain steadfast in our obedience. We must honor God in our words and actions, regardless of our circumstances, which remains true even with our thinking. We must be people who are willing to deny or defy conventional wisdom. And we must be people who praise and worship our awesome God despite our circumstances or our current state of heart. Can you flip that? Thanks. And most importantly, and lastly, probably the most difficult of all of these things is we must be willing to surrender our will to his. When you look at Jesus in Luke 22, 41 through 44, we find Jesus and the disciples sitting down for the last supper in celebration of the Passover meal. Jesus is very aware of what is going on to going to transpire. He knows he is going to be crucified, and he has walked diligently, worked diligently to prepare the disciples for this. Scripture tells us that after that, Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives where he goes to pray, and his disciples followed him. Verse 41 says, he withdrew about a stone's throw away behind them, knelt down and prayed. 42 says, Father, 
If you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. 43 says, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Can you imagine being so burdened and praying so hard that you sweat droplets of blood? Jesus knew what was to come, and he knew what had to happen. He willingly sacrificed his life for ours. He chose, don't you see the action verb there? He chose to rest in God's sovereignty, trusting that the Father ultimately knew what was best. So I just want to challenge you today. Can you trust God to know what's best for you? It's hard to let go of our own will, our own way. But it's the only way that we get to rest in his sovereignty. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the pictures that you paint for us, Lord. I love for the way you break things down in the most simplest of fashion for our minds, Lord God. Lord, today as we go, may we ponder ways that we choose to rest in your sovereignty because it is a choice and lord god i'd ask that you'd meet meet with each one of us this week and draw us unto you lord above all else your will be done over ours and may you be glorified in all of our words in all of our actions it's in jesus name we pray Amen. amen amen Thank you all. Thank you, thank you.